Today we begin our study in a new book. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. And if you've been at Crosspoint for a while, you know that when we pick a book to go through, we're usually there for, for quite some time. So one of the things we like to do is take a, a Sunday to spend a good part of the, the sermon just kind of introducing the book, getting our heads around the context, um, what's going on. The, the people it's being written to, all those sorts of things. And so we're going to have half of the sermon today be focused on that, just the context of the book of Philippians. Um, then we'll spend the second half walking through the first seven verses. So a few interesting features about really this church. This book of Philippians was um, it's called that because it was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Philippi. Um, so it was written to the Philippians. So um, interesting thing about the, the city itself of Philippi, one is that it was a Roman colony. Um, and we're going to see that um, the, the people who lived here were pretty well-to-do uh, people. So the fact that it was a Roman colony meant that the citizens there, especially if they were Roman citizens living there, they had a lot of rights and privileges, such as buying and selling land, that a lot of people... Um, even Roman citizens wouldn't normally have in other parts of the world. And so they were very uh, privileged, kind of a wealthy group of people. And it's, uh, if you look at historically, you can find stuff just through even just like a Google search that um, Mark Antony and some guys like that, after winning a battle two different times, took their, their soldiers, like their, their um, retired military personnel, and sent them to this city to live there. So this is a city that um, was full of pretty successful, uh, pretty privileged individuals. And so that's who is living here in the city of Philippi. Secondly, um, oh, before we move on from that, actually, there's an interesting note about that. We're going to see a couple times Paul reference the idea of citizenship here, um, that he's going to look at upon these people who have a pretty good life, right? They live in this city um, where they can buy and sell land, the retired military personnel, most of them, um, and, and they have a lot of pride in their Roman citizenship, most of the people living in the city. And so Paul actually reminds them a couple times throughout the book of Philippians, look, your, your primary citizenship, your primary identity is not that of a Roman ex-military officer, right? Your primary citizenship is not here on this earth at all, but in heaven, and that you were just in exile and journeying, passing through this world. So do not see this, this world and this city as comfortable as it is. It is not your home. Your home and your citizenship is in heaven. Another interesting thing about this book is that it was likely, the church in Philippi was likely Paul's favorite church. And I put a question mark there because he never comes out right and says, hey, you guys are my favorite. But when he writes the book, you see a lot of endearment. You see a lot of affection. You just see a lot of gratitude that Paul has for this people specifically. So the story of how the church is founded, um, which was founded by Paul, is pretty interesting too. So Paul was on his second missionary journey. You can read all this in the book of Acts chapter 16 if you want to study kind of the, the origins of the church in Philippi. But Paul was on his second missionary journey. He's with Silas. He's traveling to take the gospel farther out, right, to take it to places where it hasn't been known. And God specifically calls him. Often Paul just kind of goes places that seem strategic and good. But in this instance, um, God actually specifically Paul calls Paul to the region of Macedonia. And the chief city in that region is Philippi. So he goes there and he starts to preach the gospel there. Well, it turns out in this city, because it's such heavily Roman 
influence and citizens. Only certain people are sent to live there. There's not a big Jewish community. Paul would normally go to a new city. He would start with the Jews. He would go to the synagogue because he was a rabbi where he would have an audience and he would begin to preach the gospel that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the promise. Well, here in Philippi, there wasn't really a synagogue from what we can tell. And so instead, it says that he went out by the river to find what he supposed to be a place of prayer, somewhere where people might go um, to pray. Probably he heard that there's this place people go to to pray. So he goes out there. And it says that the Lord opened this group of ladies' ears to listen to him, specifically this one lady named Lydia. So the church begins to meet in the house of Lydia. And on that same day that Paul meets Lydia... There was this, um, this lady following them around, this girl rather, who had, um, a, had a demon inside of her. She was demon-possessed, and she was kind of harassing Paul and Silas. So Paul turns around, he casts the demon out of her. But it becomes problematic because there were some guys that used her as a fortune teller, right? They would travel around with her, and people would say they wanted their fortune told, and I guess the demon in her would tell people's fortunes, and so they were, they were profiting out of her having a demon inside of her. And so when Paul cast out that demon, they were upset with him. They reported him to the magistrates. So they took Paul and Silas into prison. They beat them. It says they put their legs in stocks. They're not only in prison, but they're like fastened and chained down. It's a really bad situation. But if you keep reading in that story, Paul and Silas begin to sing worship songs while they're in prison. Their chains are broken. The doors are open. The guard comes back in to see what's going on. And he's about to kill himself because he realizes, these, I'm going to be on the hook for this. All the gates are open, the doors are open, all the prisoners are going to be gone. He begins to kill himself, and Paul's like, no, 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 wait, man, we, we're still here. We haven't left. Apparently, the food was really good. So they just stayed there in prison even after the doors were open. Um, so that happens, right? Um, and then eventually, the, the guard actually um, comes to faith. Um, and so there's just an interesting story about how the church was founded in Paul's time there. Um, but I guess through the beatings and imprisonment, he decides it's time to move on, so, so he leaves. Uh, but not before a church is established there. But you hear Paul's affection for this church in a very special way throughout the book of Philippians. You see it in chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making prayer with, making my prayer with joy. Later on in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. And you can just hear that Paul has a very special place in his heart for this church. That, again, some people would say this was Paul's favorite, or at least one of his favorite churches. And when I read some of these verses about just the affection and the um, endearment you hear in Paul's voice for this church... I thought about a, a video I saw once where um, a friend of mine, her, uh, her daughter babysits our kids often. Her name is Caroline Escamilla. You may know them. Um, Caroline was on her way back from the dentist and a little loopy. You know, she had the meds and stuff. And her mom asked her, like, hey, do you want to go babysit the Martin kids? Not just joking because she was obviously not in a place where she should be watching probably even after herself, much less anyone's kids. Um, but they recorded it. And so I want you to watch this because it's pretty funny. Oh, Miss Emily Martin texts and asked if you think if I thought you could babysit tonight, and I told her, yeah, you'd be okay by tonight. What? Babysit all the kids. Anna, all three of them. Oh yeah, put them over. No, you go to their house. I can drop you off, and you can go babysit. Oh yeah, I'll do it. 
I love them. What time? Six o'clock until maybe midnight. Six hours tonight. You think you can? Yeah, I'll just so hard that I don't have my full teeth anymore, but I don't have my pants. Oh, you just want to take care of them. I just love them so much. I, I feel like they have my heart. Oh. So, I know Caroline watches a lot of you guys' kids, and I don't want to say my kids are favored or anything, but you, you can hear a clear, um, high level of affection that she has for her kids, right? And one of the specific lines she said when she said, I feel like they have my heart, I was reminded of that when I read this, these first few verses in Philippians, specifically chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, contrast just kind of the tone of how Paul writes to this church in Philippi versus, for instance, maybe the church in Galatia, where this church has been having a lot of issues. And Paul begins with some pleasantries in verses 1 through 5 and then kind of gets right to the point in verse 6 when he says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel, right? Like, the tone of those two books is clearly very different. So Paul just has a lot of affection for this church, and you hear that coming out in this book of Philippians. Um, a third kind of feature of Philippians that we can recognize as we begin the study of this book is the structure of it has a very clear centerpiece in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We'll read that here in just a second, but most of Paul's letters kind of follow this this general pattern, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, all of them kind of follow this um, pattern where for the first you know, half or two-thirds of the book, Paul will talk theology. He'll talk about here's Jesus, here's what he's done, here's the gospel. It's very theologically focused. And then about halfway through, there'll be a big therefore or because of this, now go and live this way. And the book transitions to more practical the book of Philippians is very different. In the book of Philippians, the, the structure of it is almost more like there's a very clear central midpoint in the book where Paul just exalts the greatness of Christ. In these verses 5 through 11, most people think it's some sort of an early creed or a hymn because the language is very poetic. It's something you might have sung or had memorized and recited. Um, and so instead of following this linear pattern, you've kind of got this centerpiece of the, the greatness and humility of Christ and everything else in the book kind of stems off of that. So Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Let's read it real quick so we can get our heads around this centerpiece of the book. And by the way, this might be, a, if you need something to memorize, looking for like a scripture to, to commit to memory, this would be a great one because it seems like in the very, very early days of the church, this may have been some sort of creed or hymn that they would have had memorized. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the kind of the centerpiece, the hub of the book of Philippians that everything else kind of spins off of. And then last observation as far as the features of Philippians is there is this very clear theme of joy. The word joy or rejoice appears 13 different times in this short little book of four chapters. And we, f- we find that that joy is found and expressed a lot of it, and we've talked about this and we'll talk about this more. A lot of that joy is found and expressed in Paul's gratitude for the believers there in the church, but ultimately his joy and gratitude is found in the person of Jesus and what he has done. Um, just as Jesus is the center of this letter, right? Jesus is the, the centerpiece, the, the anchor point of the joy that Paul is able to have, even in the midst of a terrible situation, such as being in prison and suffering. Um, and so we'll see a lot of that as we move through the book. We'll see a lot of points where Paul will talk about joy, and we'll talk about how to apply that into our own lives, how we can have joy despite a difficult or frustrating situation, such as being in prison. Um, but one of the things I want to mention, since we're talking about the context of the book, is that um, I think it's no coincidence that this book is kind of considered the book about joy that Paul writes from prison, but it's also written to the people in the city of that story we we heard earlier where Paul was in prison in Philippi singing, right? I mean, you can imagine how you would respond to being put in prison and being your feet being put in stocks, right? Where they would like strap stuff around your ankles and just like spread you and stretch you out so it would deduce cramping and make you as uncomfortable as humanly possible. Most of us would not respond by singing praises to the Lord in that instance, right? But what we find in that is this idea that sometimes one of the most therapeutic things we can do when we are in an uncomfortable, difficult, stressful situation, maybe filled with anxiety and fear, is to sing praises to God. And I hope that's what happens each week when we come in here, right? Is that some of you guys may have had, a, even this week, a week with a lot of anxiety. Most of you probably didn't come here out of prison, right? But you, many of you had a difficult week. You were fearful. You were anxious. But one of the best things you can do to combat that is to lift your voice and hear others singing praises to the Lord. We learn that singing fosters joy amidst difficulty. Because again, although Paul is, is grateful for these believers, right, and that, that's, he gets some joy out of that, his ultimate joy in suffering in prison is rooted in knowing Jesus. We might say it this way, that if the source of Paul's joy is, is the sun, and that sun represents Jesus, that some of the strongest rays through which that joy is relayed is through the fellowship he has with these folks in Philippi. Um, and so, a little bit of features of the book there. Now let's move into things we're encouraged by in this week's text, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So we're just going to have three kind of let us comments, three things that we can be encouraged towards 
through these seven verses. And the first one is this, let us maintain plural leadership. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, right out of the gate, the first thing Paul says in his address is this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now I want you to just take notice of that, that when Paul writes this letter, he's writing it to the church at large, but then he specifically mentions the leaders of the church, and those leaders are mentioned in a group in plurality of elders or overseers and deacons. By the way, that word overseers, biblically, you'll see the word elders, overseers, pastors, all used to refer to the same group of people. Um, So you can swap those words out if you'd like. But with the overseers and deacons, that's who he addresses the letter to. And we see this time and time again. This isn't me just cherry-picking a small phrase in a verse and making a big deal out of it. We see that time and time again through the New Testament, that the biblical New Testament model for church leadership is that of plurality, of a group of people leading together. And the reason that's um, a value for us at Crosspoint, that's something we hold dearly to, something we maintain, um, something we structure our church around, is not just that it's biblical, although that would be enough reason to, to value something right, but also because we see that there are so many practical benefits to leading a church in the way God has um, instructed us to do so in plurality. Um, For one thing, it guards us as pastors. Um, So we have four pastors at this church, and and it guards the four of us from bearing a weight we weren't created to bear, right? No, No one man is really equipped to bear the entire weight of a church on his shoulders, right? That one of my favorite things about being a pastor here is that there are many weeks where I'm in the congregation, sitting with my family, listening to the sermon, being ministered to, being not just a pastor, but also a Christian in this church, right? Um, and it protects us from being so isolated. Sometimes if there were, I think if there were only one of us serving as the pastor here, it would feel like you were very isolated. It would feel like if anything ever went wrong or you were struggling, you probably wouldn't want to trust anyone with that information because you're holding so much of the weight on your own shoulders. So it protects us in lots of different ways as pastors. It also protects us from pride of looking out and going, look what I've created here, right? Um, it protects us from that. Another thing it protects is you guys as the congregation. Um, it guards the congregation from becoming dependent on one person's faith or teaching. And I've seen that happen in my own life. I've seen that happen in others' lives where what can happen is if you find a teacher or a minister who you just really particularly love the way that person teaches and the way they preach, and you're just really drawn to that, and you kind of attach yourself to that, is what can happen is your faith can become intertwined and dependent upon that minister in a really unhealthy way, to the point where if he falls, your faith falls with him. Or if he leaves, your faith and allegiance leave with him. And so one of our desires at Crosspoint is to have a a plurality of leaders, and even in the preaching days, you would hear from multiple different voices, so that you don't become dependent on hearing that guy, that person, and your faith be founded and grounded in that one person's style of preaching or what he or how he preaches. And that the question we want you guys as a congregation to be asking when someone preaches is not, you know, what did I think of this guy's delivery, or his humor, or his dress, or how did I feel when he got done preaching, but is the person explaining and applying God's Word? 
And if yes, that is enough. We don't have to have that packaged in a certain way, being delivered with a certain personality or style, but we are a people who are hungry and ready to receive God's word and looking forward to that, not just the person who is delivering it. The second let us here is going to be this, to let us be thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us be thankful for faithful brothers and sisters. And again, Paul was especially thankful for these guys, and and we'll talk about what it looks like for us to be thankful for others, but before we do, I want us to step back and evaluate ourselves, which is always a fun thing to hear in a sermon, right? Let's all step back and evaluate ourselves, right? It's kind of a, a gut check here, but Paul was clearly like very, very filled with gratitude when he thought about this church. Um, I'm sure he was filled with a lot of gratitude when he thought about the church in Galatia as well, but that gratitude was mixed with a lot of frustration and difficulty too, right? So I just wonder if we should stop for a second and ask ourselves, am I the type of person who my leaders are filled with gratitude towards? When my leaders think of me, and this can apply outside church too, this could be kids, this could be your parents as your leaders, this could be your boss at work, this could be your small group leader at church. It doesn't have to be just your pastors, but in this context, that's what it is, but Paul is their, their founding pastor, but the question is, am I the type of person who my leaders are really excited about me and glad that I'm here? Or would their feelings towards me be a little mixed, right? Where, yeah, they're glad I'm here, but I've also been causing a lot of problems, right? I've been causing difficulty. It's been a strain. It's been a chore for them because I am part of this group or congregation. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it may be helpful in all of this for us to ask ourselves, do we live in such a way that brings our leaders joy or strife? Do we live in such a way that we bring our leaders a blessing or more of a burden? On the flip side, we should express gratitude for others, right? We should look at those who we are grateful for and express that gratitude. That's what you see Paul doing here. You think this had to have been so encouraging for this church, right? When Paul writes this letter to them and he says, man, every time I pray for you guys, I'm just filled with joy when I think about you. I mean, how encouraging is that of a thing for a church to hear? Now, we don't, we don't send each other a lot of letters in our context, right? I think it's been a long time since one of you guys mailed me a letter. But what does happen quite often uh, is that some of you guys will, will send me a text. And it's not just because I'm a pastor. I know this happens through small groups, through serving teams, through just relationships and connections you guys have among each other, that there's a lot of encouragement and gratitude towards one another. And I know for me personally, if I'm going through something, whether it's a, a big transition or just a, a d- very difficult time or just something that's maybe not even hard but just really, really important that I'm going through. And I've had people text me and say, hey, Kai, I'm praying this for you. And they'll actually spell out what they're praying or they'll put a verse on there and say, I'm praying this verse for you. And it's so encouraging because it's not just the encouragement of, of what they said, but the encouragement of knowing that they are indeed really praying for me during that time. 
I see this played out um, even even when we pray together as a family for meals and um, if someone is at our house or even if it's just us and we begin to really thank God for the people in our lives and in our family and then those, those people are then able to hear the, the gratitude that we have towards God for them. There's a, um, there's a group of ladies that seven or eight months ago decided to, they were reading, going through a, a book on prayer and decided to start praying for us regularly as elders. So every email I get a month from Blanche Harper, I know Janice Bowder is involved in this too, where they're just asking, hey, how can we pray for you guys? And it's just so encouraging to get those kinds of texts and affirmations. Um, and then lastly, we'll look at the idea of let us trust God for perseverance. So there's a verse that is in this text that's pretty um, pretty familiar to a lot of us, and it says this in chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And what I want us to notice about that is that as much as Paul loved this congregation, and as, as high of regard as he had for them, as much as he thought of them, as happy as he was about them and how they were following the Lord, he places his confidence not in their ability to run the race and finish the course, but he places his confidence that God would finish what he started in them, that God would not start a work in them and then drop them off, leaving it half done. One of the questions we often ask ourselves as Christians, whether we want to admit it or not, I think almost everyone asks themselves this, is how do I know that I'm saved? How can I be sure that on that day when my life is over and I stand before God, that I will be welcomed as a son and daughter and not cast out as an enemy? How can I be sure and have assurance of my eternal security and destination? And there's lots of different answers the Bible gives to that. We've talked about those here at Crosspoint before. One of those is the idea of a tree and its fruit, right? That um, just like an apple tree doesn't produce oranges, that if you are producing a certain type of fruit, you are proving or showing that a certain thing is within you, right? Paul talks about the idea of the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, right? All those things that if we're producing those things in our lives, we are showing and affirming in ourselves that the Holy Spirit is in us because the Holy Spirit is the one who produces those things. So if, those, if that fruit is evident, then it gives us confidence that God is in us, working in us, molding us into the image of His Son. Another way we could answer that question is just by simple belief, right? That scriptures say time and time again that if you would believe in the Lord Jesus, you would be saved. In fact, that was the, the message given to the Philippian jailer when he was about to kill himself. And Paul was like, no, 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 there's no need for that. We're still here. Goes through this whole fiasco. I'm sure the guy's like confused and doesn't know what to think. And eventually he asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gives a very simple answer in Philippians, or sorry, Philippians 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's that simple, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in what he's done, and you will be saved. So we have assurance in lots of different ways in regards to our salvation. 
And sometimes we even think about the road ahead, right? Like, because the scriptures also teach that we're saved not by just a moment of faith, praying one prayer, but by a life of enduring faith in Jesus. And we often will ask ourselves, how do I know that I'm going to persevere? How can I trust that I'm going to continue following Jesus to the end? How do I know if I'm going to make it? How do I know if my kids, my mom, my friends are going to make it? Because the, lo- the road in Christianity is a long road to the end of our life, pursuing and believing in Jesus. And I love that Paul's source of confidence, and should be our source of confidence, of how can I know I'm going to endure, is not anything to do with my ability to pull myself up by my bootstraps, buckle up and get after it, but by the fact that Christ will finish what he started. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it through to the day of Jesus. In um, Galatians chapter 3, Sounds like I'm picking on the church in Galatia today, um, but they they just have this um, they had this issue where they had believed in Jesus, but then they bought into this idea that in order to remain in God's favor and continue to be accepted by Him, we don't just need to trust in Jesus dying for our sins, but we need to do all these things, you know, take this thing to the next level, complete these steps in order to really stay in God's favor and good graces and be accepted by Him. We need to believe in Jesus and then do all these other things. Um, and Paul admonishes them in that, or sorry, corrects them in that, and he says in Galatians 3.3, 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Guys, anytime someone comes to faith in Jesus, a miracle takes place, right? And the scripture talks about people becoming Christians in very... Um, dramatic terms, right? That it is as though a dead person becomes alive. It is as though a blind person is able to see. It is as though someone is born again. It is a work of God. And the one who is powerful enough to initiate our faith is more than capable of sustaining our faith to the end. Um, I grew up in a region of Texas known as the Panhandle, and a town in the middle of that region called Panhandle. Um, and so, growing up in, in Panhandle, Texas, um, there's not a lot of water. Just period. There's just not a lot of water. It's just a very dry, and there's not a lot of change in elevation. So even if there were water, there's really nowhere for it to collect for the most part. So one of the interesting things I learned when I moved to the DFW area is y'all have these um, um, lakes, Right, these these big like these big like craters, right, where the elevation changes and like because there's water it collects there and it like stacks up, right? And you've got this lake, right? And so when I was first here, I thought, man, it'd be cool to to get a boat, right? Because I see people out on their boats and several people I knew were like, no, 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 man, don't go down that path. You don't want a boat. You just need a friend with a boat, right? It's way better than having a boat because they say the two happiest days in the man's life, right, are the day he buys his boat and the day he sells it. You guys ever heard this, right? Because once you purchase something, you then have the responsibility to upkeep and maintain and protect and take care of that thing, right? And that can be a pain to have one more engine, like one more thing that you have to take care of. But we understand that, right? That like, especially if you buy a really nice thing and it costs you a lot of money, you then feel a sense of responsibility to protect that because you don't want to lose that investment, right? Here's how the scripture speaks of us. 
is that God was willing to pay a very, very, very high price to rescue and redeem us for himself. Not with gold or silver, but the precious blood of Christ. And we can trust the God who was willing to pay the price of his blood son to make that investment and purchase us for himself will surely do everything in his power to protect and maintain that purchase and not let it slip through the cracks or fall by the wayside. That is what this scripture teaches us in 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. In Romans 8.30, Paul says it this way, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, from start to finish, salvation is a work of God that he begins and completes in us. And there is no point in there where we have a risk of falling off the tracks or slipping through the cracks. So church, I want us to walk away encouraged by this text, knowing that if you have chosen to believe and follow Jesus, that just like you trust him to save you and redeem you from your sin, and he is able and powerful enough to do that, that he is also able to sustain us and complete that work to the end. That when we look at the long road of Christianity that lies ahead, am I going to be faithful? Can I stick with this thing? Can I walk the path? Can I finish the course? Can I run the race? The answer is not, yes, I can. It's, yes, he can, right? It's, yes, Jesus who brought me from death to life is able to sustain and uphold me and make sure I persevere to the end. And I can look ahead, not trusting my ability, but trusting him and his commitment to me because he paid a high price to redeem me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for just the assurance we have in your word and in this book specifically. Um, the assurance that you who purchased us will surely keep and maintain us and see your work through till the end. God, help us to trust you with that. And when we, when we doubt our faith and our ability to persevere and our obedience and when we slip and when it looks like we're stumbling off of this path, God, help us to return with confidence knowing that you are able to redeem and sustain us throughout the course of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.